This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Welcome to another episode of the East Traumacast. Uh, this is one of our East Literature Review uh, series, uh, although we are a little bit delayed from the review, which actually came out in April of 2017. Uh, we are going to be discussing the topic of uh, vascular arterial shunts and damage control, and specifically the paper, Temporary Arterial Shunts and Damage Control Experience and Outcomes, uh, which was reviewed in the East Literature Review. So joining us to discuss this today, first, uh, uh, Tarek, do you want to introduce yourself first? Sure. Uh, this is Tariq Kerbeck. Um, I'm a trauma surgeon at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, been practicing for a couple of years, and uh, I had the pleasure to review this paper and uh, um, write a short commentary on um, the findings. And I'm happy to discuss it today with the authors. Okay, great. And uh, the authors we have uh, first. Uh, we have first author Sarah Matthew, who is, uh, I think, a fellow at the time that uh, wrote this, but just recently graduated. Sarah, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, um, so my name is Sarah Matthew, and um, I'm a recent Penn Fellow grad. I'm going to be starting up at Reading Hospital in Pennsylvania this fall. Excellent. And joining us is a senior author on the paper as well, Dr. Mark Seaman. Yeah, so um, after finishing my fellowship here in 2007, I uh, came back a few years ago. I'm now uh, an associate professor of surgery here at Penn. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, work with Sarah on this paper and uh, Happy to discuss it today. All right, fantastic. For those who want to uh, find the actual paper, uh, it was published, uh, I believe, uh, Volume 82 of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Uh, and uh, let's see, what month was that? I, I'm blanking on which month that actually was. Anybody remember? It was the third issue, so it should be March. Third issue, March of uh, 2017. So, okay, yeah. thanks. Um, well, let's jump right in. Uh, why don't we start, uh, Tarek? Why don't you go ahead and. Uh, so summarize the paper and then maybe talk a little bit about why you chose it for the East Literature Review. Sure. Um, so uh, this paper is a retrospective study. Um, it was uh, done at uh, a Level 1 Trauma Center, University of Pennsylvania, a very busy center with penetrating trauma. Um, the authors wanted to uh, um, evaluate or look at the vascular shunt experience in the last uh, eight years leading up to the study analysis. And... Uh, Specifically, they uh, wanted to look at uh, complication rates and relationship between complication rates and uh, dwell time of uh, the shunts. Uh, basically, uh, the um, benefit of uh, the temporary vascular sh uh, shunts, temporary arterial shunts in trauma and damage control specifically has been established, especially in the military. However, there were not many papers in um, human um, um, or human studies that looked at uh, the time of uh, um, dwell time in, in vascular shunts um, and whether that affects outcome. Um, there are a couple of uh, studies in the military that basically tried to maintain or keep the time less than um, um, six hours uh, as much as they can until the transfer to a definitive care. Uh, but in uh, civilian trauma and especially in damage control, sometimes it is difficult to 
um, go back to the operating room in a shorter period, and you're obligated to keep the shunt in for about, you know, 12 hours or a day. So the authors wanted to evaluate whether that has any any association with increased complication rates. So they looked at their experience and um, found 42 patients who had temporary vascular shunts, um, eventually analyzed uh, 35 uh, because they excluded uh, seven patients who uh, died uh, before definitive care or definitive uh, vascular repair, and uh, those who died before definitive vascular repair were died due to other uh, severe injuries. Um, and uh, they found, in summary, uh, five uh, incidents of complications. And um, the interesting findings in the paper, which I found very practical to use in uh, or to, to learn from, is that all complications happen after six hours. That was their cutoff that they used based on um, standard warm ischemia time for uh, vascular injuries or vascular uh, disease, and uh, they found that all complications uh, from shunts happened after the six-hour uh, uh, cutoff, and no one who had vascular shunts less than six hours had any complication. And uh, why did you choose this for the literature review? What what spoke to you from this, sure. of this paper? We we have learned the benefit of uh, damage control in trauma. And uh, most of the time, practically, uh, when we get somebody in the in the, in the operating room and we decide to proceed with damage control, uh, patient will go back to the operating room generally uh, the next day. And the next day, um, it, it depends on when you start the surgery. It could be at least six hours. So it was interesting that it actually found that, that there is more complication rates beyond six hours, which would could affect uh, uh, the decision. Um, when you're operating uh, late at night um, or early morning hours to uh, give priority for that specific patient to go back to the operating room in less than six hours if the physiology allows. Um, so I found that, that that this information, which was not present in the literature before, um, is important to use practically uh, on day-to-day dealing with traumas and vascular trauma. Okay, great. Uh, Sarah, I have a question for you. How did you choose six hours when you were researching this uh, topic? What 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 was it about six hours that made you choose that as the cutoff? Well, I mean, historically, there there was a six-hour cutoff for vascular um, ischemia time, <clears throat> but also sort of practically. Um, initially, going into the study, we actually wanted to be very precise with our dwell times and know to the minute um, how long these shunts were in. But unfortunately, the way that it's documented or lack thereof, um, you're left with more hour, you know, hour-type increments. You don't have exact shunt times in the same way you would have, say, clamp times with aortic clamping. So um, uh, it was sort of both um, historical and then practical necessity. Going and forward, Mark, I, I think a, we would oh, like to yeah. have more precise dwell times. Yeah. So, Mark, I have a question for you. Um, practically speaking, six hours is kind of uh, maybe tough to achieve in terms of return to the OR. I mean, is, how often do you think patients are able to be sort of stabilized enough to plan to go back to the OR in these damage control situations? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, the intent was never to say uh, so much as uh, all patients should go back within six hours or else, um, and more so uh, to say that uh, bring patients back for definitive repair as quickly as you can. So really, um, you know, we were trying to avoid the unnecessary delays. We, uh, you know, shunt place that night or repair sometime the next day, uh, those kind of things. So, um, you know, I think uh, 
um, resuscitate the patient uh, as needed, warm the patient up, and once they're ready to go, uh, by all means, bring them back for formal repair. So uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, when we look at our data, a lot of times the patients with torso injuries, abdominal and chest injuries, uh, um, were more of the damage control type patients that, uh, you know, uh, needed more resuscitation, which, uh, you know, kind of makes clinical sense as well. So it kind of has to be uh, the whole uh, gestalt, you know, looking at the entire patient, whether they're ready to go back or not. Okay. Um, and, and that makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, six hours is, is maybe the way to interpret this is that recognize that uh, although six hours may not be the clinically right time to go back to the OR, but the risk of complications does go up. And presumably, I guess, is uh, the longer the shunt is in place, the the cumulative risk goes up as well. Agreed. Um, one other question I had, Sarah. Um, even though University of Pennsylvania has very busy penetrating trauma, it seemed like this was still a relatively infrequent procedure performed. Could you comment on the frequency and, and, and maybe the general applicability outside of an urban, more penetrating-based kind of trauma center? Um, I think that's one of the challenges with um, when you look at the literature for shunting is that um, even in the military literature, it's not something that happens um, with a very high frequency because by definition you're doing it in patients where you're potentially dealing with some other major injury or a very sick patient or um, a concomitant, say, fracture associated with a vascular injury that's pushing you to do the shunt um, in this particular patient. So. Um, you know, in my own two-year fellowship, um, was lucky that I did get to see several shunts placed. But again, it's you're right; it's not something that we use uh, every day. That said, I think it's important. Um, it's an important tool to have um, because it really does cut down on the on the warm ischemia time that these the patients experience, um, and especially in extremities. I think the military has been able to show that it you know, really improves uh, limb salvage when you're faced with either shunting or ligation, if you can't do a primary repair. And presumably there was no anticoagulation used in any or maybe very few of these shunts actually is my is my. So we, yeah, we actually looked at that. Um, it was, uh, we went back to, to look first at uh, shunt dwell time, but we also wanted to look at like numerous other factors like cardiac arrest, anticoagulation, um, significant hypotension or pressure use. Um, and there, there, uh, three out of our 35 patients did get systemic anticoagulation when the shunt was in place, um, and 12 got uh, at least anticoagulation during the formal repair, but it, none of them showed any significant um, association with shunt complications. I mean, I think if you look back at the historic literature, because most of these patients are so sick and coagulopathic, the vast majority of them don't get anticoagulated. Um, Right, and that's the that's the damage control paradigm. Uh, makes sense. Um, Mark, can you talk a little bit about the technique? Um, you know, there may be people listening who've never actually had a clinical occasion to use one, and maybe we should talk a little bit about how it's done, the materials, the different types of shunts, maybe some pros sure. and cons, and maybe sure. if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about about that. Yeah, there's uh, several different types of shunts available. Um, by far, I think the simplest is the argyle shunt, which is essentially just a uh, plastic straw. Um, 
just a straight uh, plastic tube. Um, the, let's see, the Javid shunt is similar, uh, but it also has uh, tapered ends, which can facilitate insertion. Um, the, let's see, the stunt shunt is uh, a little different. It's, uh, it's longer, it's um, a little more malleable, and it's also reinforced with a uh, um, steel spring within the walls. Uh, it also has uh, kind of mushroom tip ends, which uh, secures the stunt, the uh, stunt shunt in place a little better. Um, many times, especially in torso injuries, uh, the sizes of these um, commercially available shunts aren't appropriate, and there's you know, a large uh, vessel to shunt mismatch, so uh, we'll end up using chest tubes or things like that that are uh, cut down to size. Ending up pretty similar to an argyle shunt. Argyle shunts commercially are just uh, uh, eight to 14 French. So we will have uh, pediatric chest tubes available on our uh, trauma cart, also in case you need, say, a 20 French uh, uh, caliber instead. Um, so uh, those are the different types of shunts. Uh, far and away, our uh, largest experience was with uh, argyle shunts. Um, and the technique is, uh, you know, first and foremost is proximal distal control. Now you have to have several centimeters of proximal distal control on each vessel end. Um, and typically what I'll do is encircle this uh, each end. I use uh, a uh, 2-0 silk on each end um, of the vessel. Just encircle that without tying it down. And then um, after the uh, shunt is irrigated with saline to prevent air envelopes. Um, I will uh, insert the uh, distal end first after uh, back bleeding through the, um, through the uh, shunt and after tying a O-silk around the middle of the shunt. And that's really just to uh, mark the placement to make sure it doesn't migrate. So after back bleeding, we'll place the proximal end and uh, the reason to do that is, again, to prevent uh, any embolism. You also usually will want to uh, fogarty uh, uh, embolectomize um, uh, both proximally and distally uh, before placement of the shunt. For you know your typical SFA injury, usually a four French, for example. So we typically do not uh, systemically heparinize, uh, like uh, Sarah said. Uh, a lot of times, though, we will use <clears throat> uh, localized uh, heparin, which is a uh, usually 10 units per cc and uh, heparinized daily. Um, Tarek, what's your experience with shunts? Have you ever had occasion to place one, and uh, and how did it go? Yeah, I um, I did fellowship in, in Penn, and I actually did more shunts in the two years that I did uh, than did two years fellowship than I did in the last three years at Brown. Uh, we are not uh, a busy penetrating trauma. We do. We have a fair amount of stabbing, but not much uh, shootings, and most of our traumas are blunt trauma, um, and with a few incidents of uh, vascular injuries associated with uh, fractures. So I, I, I can recall probably a handful of uh, uh, inj vascular injuries that require chunts, um, but I, uh, the technique is similar to what Mark uh, described. Um, um, I, I think that Fogarty and uh, local heparinization with the heparinized saline 
um, very important um, before uh, placement of the shunt. Um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't done much in the last uh, three years. It is very underutilized uh, um, surgical skill and technique that is very helpful, but very underutilized. Sarah, how many? Uh, I don't know if this was something you looked at, but um, what was the vascular surgery involvement with these shunts? Or were they were they placed all by trauma surgeons, or was there a mix of both? And what was that interaction like? Can you can you talk about that? Yeah. So as you can imagine, the majority of these patients didn't uh, didn't come in during business hours. So the, all the shunts were placed <laughs> by our trauma surgeons. They come um, in during my block time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our block time. Uh, the, the trauma block time. Uh, so the shunts were all placed by trauma surgeons, and then depending on surgeon preference, um, the primary, the sorry, the subsequent definitive repair was done either by the trauma surgeon or by uh, in in concert with our our vascular colleagues, um, if consulted. But they were, it was a it was a matter of trauma surgeon preference whether or not uh, vascular was involved for the repair. I have I have found that um, I'm sorry, but I've, I've found that when you consult vascular surgery early in the case, if they are available for some reason, they don't feel as excited about damage control using shunts for damage control, and they prefer to come in and start repairing the artery. And it takes uh, it, it takes more effort to convince them to just proceed with a shunt now and and stabilize the patient. And 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 I wondered, I always wondered if that is a reason why. There is an underutilization of uh, the shunt placement in civilian big trauma centers where the vascular surgeons are readily available in that they are not as interested as trauma surgeons. I'm not sure what everybody else has. Um, I know the original experience on that, on that thing. I think that's a good point, but I also think that that's where it becomes our job to see the forest for the trees. Um, right. You're, you're right, and the vascular surgeon can be looking at that SFA injury, but it's you know, it's our job to know that the patient's also acidotic and cold and needs to get out of the OR. Um, but it's, I think uh, that's very true, and it's also um, something you learn over time is uh, the art of when to consult and when kind of not to. And you know, uh, certainly, I think that's uh, right on, Dark. If if you uh, you know, if uh, if you're um, Consulting a vascular surgeon in the middle of the night, they're not going to want to come in and uh, place a shunt and then come back in uh, several hours to repair it. So, you know, I think exactly. uh, every every trauma surgeon should be able to get proximal distal control and place a shunt. And then, uh, you know, if if need be, or uh, you know, if that's uh, your prerogative to call a vascular surgeon later for their formal repair. Okay. Um, another question I had about uh, the paper in particular was, if your if one of your outcomes of interest was you know distal ischemia or thrombosis or things like that, how did you distinguish whether that was a consequence of the shunt or the primary injury? In other words, what is the attributable complication risk to the shunt, and, and can that be separated out from the injury? And, and I would say that a, a similar thing has plagued. Uh, like tourniquet research, how you know how do you determine what is tourniquet morbidity and how much is morbidity of just the initial injury? Maybe Sarah, do you want to comment on that aspect of it? Uh, I think that's a it's a really good question. It's also a challenging one. I don't know that with our small sample size that you could necessarily definitively tease that out. 
Um, I do think it's interesting, some of the basic science literature that's referred to in the article where they had um, porcine models and they looked at endothelial damage after um, various shunt times. Um, and they were able to show that the longer a shunt was in, that there was more endothelial injury. Um, so I think that shunts aren't benign, um, but they're also being used in a life-saving situation. So it's sort of risk-benefit. I think at the end of the day, our sample size is maybe a little too small to tease that out. Um, uh, and it's a question that our future multi-center kind of perspective studies could look at. So along those lines, are there any multi-center trials in the works? Is that something that is being done? Uh, good segue. Uh, there is actually. Um, uh, Mark and another fellow here at Penn are now in the process of uh, enrolling patients in a multi-center trial prospectively looking at shunt placement in patients. And really the intention is, uh, you know, twofold. One, to get that exact data that simply isn't there with retrospective studies. You're relying on documentation years later and things like that. But also to get an adequate sample size because, you know, it's a rare event, just like we said. So to do that, we have, uh, I believe, 16 centers now. Uh, you know, hopefully enrolling patients, so um, better answers to come. Yeah, I admit that was not an innocent question on my part. I sort of uh, put that one on a tee for you guys, so I knew, I knew that I knew that trial was going on, so I wanted you to be sure to Thank plug that to see if there was any. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, the, if there's anyone listening that uh, feels like they can contribute to the to the uh, study, uh, Mark, should they just contact you through the East uh, on Absolutely. or multi multi center trials uh, webpage? Sarah, maybe could you answer this? How many of the definitive repairs in this series were vain? How many were prosthetic? And did that seem to affect the complication rate? The vast majority of the repairs were um, were done with vein. It was 76% uh, were vain, 21% uh, yes. were PTSE. I think there was one primary repair. As far as the actual complications, they were, I don't have the, the numbers right in front of me, on, um, but I don't think there was any significance um, as far as correlation between PTFE um, and uh, complications um, after shunt or subsequent limb salvage. I only ask because it seems like that's a very hotly debated topic and people have you know, almost a, a religious zeal about their preferred method. Now, I may be opening myself up to a hate mail by saying that, but uh. <laughs> I have a question on that to uh, um, Mark and to you, David. Um, would the time, the dwell time, affect what you choose, vein or versus PTFE, considering that the wounds are going to be open and likely more contaminated the longer you leave it open? Well, it, you know, in my opinion, and, and uh, David, please uh, answer yours, but in my opinion, every one of these wounds is contaminated. Now, you know, I don't, uh, Dr. Policiano talks about using PTFE and things like that in with concomitant bowel injuries, and pelvic gunshot mm. wounds, iliac injuries, uh, mm. you know, without uh, ill effects. So um, I don't think, uh, you know, um, hours of dwell time uh, really is a contraindication or even really a consideration. 
I think I'd agree with that. And, and again, take it, take it with a grain of salt because I don't claim to be a vascular expert by any stretch. But to me, one of the potential benefits of shunting is that you get out of this acute period where you're in damage control mode. And then when it is appropriate time to come back, maybe then is the time where you have the time to harvest a vein and prepare it appropriately and all that kind of stuff. So my, my, my thought is that, you know, Maybe they're maybe they're different patient populations. Maybe in the patient who gets a PTFE, it's because it's quick, it's it's off the shelf, it's you can put it in right away. But in a shunt patient, by definition, you're going to have a delay, and and you're going to come back in a more stable time where you could do a a vein repair. So that that's my thought on it. Maybe it's not the exact same patient population, and so maybe it's not a fair question for this for this group. And we know that in the military, there are some patients, particularly those IED patients, who they just didn't have vein to use. Because right. you know three or even four extremities were involved. So um, maybe the other question I have is that um, there may be people listening who maybe haven't had an opportunity to be trained how to do this, or, or maybe didn't learn it when they were during training. What sort of resources are available to to do this kind of vascular damage control uh, to learn how to do it? I should say. And what would you recommend, Mark? Do you want to start with that? Yeah, the t the two uh, courses that kind of come to mind uh, for me are uh, Adam and Asset, and um, uh, you know both of which uh, are very helpful for this type of thing. Particularly Asset, I believe, um, because they you know really focus on these exposures, and, uh, and you could um, uh, practice all of your techniques and. You know, really, it comes down as a trauma surgeon, I think, to getting that proximal and distal control and doing it quickly, making the right incision and things like that, stopping the bleeding. Um, so I think uh, those are the two courses uh, that I know of that are that would probably be the most beneficial for someone who's learning to gain a little comfort. With it. Okay. Well, um, I think I think we've covered the topic pretty well. I guess uh, lastly, I'll just open it up and see if anybody has any. Last-minute comments, or uh, Tarek, if you have any other questions that you want to ask about the paper. We have captive audience with the authors here. so um, I mean, uh, the one one observation on the paper um, that I think will, will answer some of the questions that were brought up in this uh, um, discussion uh, is that if you were going to look at the effect of uh, vascular shunts specifically, um, or the, if vascular shunts increase risk of uh, complications, uh, it would have been interesting to look at the group after six hours. So all the patients that had a dwell time more than six hours and see um, those who had complications versus those who did not have complications, that would answer whether physiology or the injury pattern affected the complication rate as well. Um, and I think that if uh, if that is taken into consideration in the prospective uh, trial analysis, um, it will provide more um, uh, important answers to some of these questions. Basically, a stratified analysis to different uh, subgroups in the uh, in the uh, in the cohort. I think that's a, a great comment, Tark, and uh, you know one that uh, with more than five complications, uh, you know, hopefully right. we'll be able to answer a little better. Right. I think um, my takeaway from this whole experience has been that this is really just a very young body of literature. Um, you know, as recently as 2010, we're still publishing retrospective reviews of our military experience or our civilian experience, and, and this is another one of those. So um, I think the, the answers are still out there to be found going forward. Hopefully our uh, upcoming trials can answer some of those.
Yeah, I'd agree with that, and, and kudos, Mark, to getting a, a multi-center trial up and going because that's really with these low incidence kind of issues. That's really the the only way that we're going to get, uh, you know, get closer to the truth out there. So, uh, so thank you for doing the legwork and all the time and effort that it goes into well, doing that you. kind of a study. It is, uh, it is an effort, <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> but uh, hopefully it'll be worth it in the end. We will, um, in conjunction with this uh, TraumaCast, we will post a link to the uh, multi-center trials page for people to click on. Uh, so hopefully that will drum up some interest and uh, send people your way. Um, Great. Any, uh, any, just real briefly, any uh, specific type of trauma center you want to look for? You take all comers, or what? What? Uh, what kind of? No, we, you know, uh, really, we want a good mix of uh, of trauma centers. So. Um, you know, I think naturally uh, the centers that will be interested will be, you know, the urban centers of the penetrating patients. But, um, you know, to make the study applicable to all, uh, the better variation that we have in trauma center and patient type, the better, you know, for ultimately for our study. So um, even if, uh, you know, your center places uh, two shunts a year or whatever, uh, you know, um, that is still uh, – Good information and good data to us. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for joining us for the conversation here. I think uh, this is an interesting topic that, uh, that I guess, fortunately, most of us don't deal with very often. I guess that's a good thing for the for the population in general, but unfortunately means that uh, the overall experience is going to be spread pretty thin. So thank you for sharing your guys' experience with this and with the paper. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And Tarek, thanks uh, for doing the review for East. Uh, I, I know that uh, the East literature reviews for me are one of the uh, things that I look forward to, it, uh, and only because it enables my laziness of not having to stay as abreast <laughs> of the literature. So thank you very much for doing <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.